it exposes the complexity of policy solutions that dictate how algorithms have to operate. It's just not so simple in terms of one switch to a, to an algorithm has all these changes in terms of what content is surfaced and what people see on the platforms. I'm Quinta Jurassic, a senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 11th, 2023. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the information ecosystem. How much influence do social media platforms have on American politics and society? It's a tough question for researchers to answer, not just because it's so big, but also because platforms rarely, if ever, provide all the data that would be needed to address the problem. A new batch of papers released in the journal Science and Nature marks the latest attempt to tackle this question, with access to data provided by Facebook's parent company, Meta. The 2020 Facebook and Instagram election research study, a partnership between Meta researchers and outside academics, studied the platform's impact on the 2020 election and uncovered some nuanced findings, suggesting that those impacts might be less than you'd expect. Today on the podcast, my fellow Lawfare senior editor, Ellen Rosenstein, and I are joined by the project's co-leaders, Talia Stroud of the University of Texas at Austin and Joshua A. Tucker of NYU. We discussed their findings, what it was like to work with Meta, and whether or not this is a good model for independent academic research on platforms going forward. If you're interested in more on the project, we'll also provide links to the papers, an overview of the findings, and an FAQ provided by Tucker and Stroud in the show notes. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 11th. What impact did Facebook have on the 2020 elections? Talia, Josh, thanks so much for coming on. Um, we're going to get into the details of your studies as we talk, but I want to start just by asking you to describe what to you at least are the kind of most important top line main findings of this you know, very long and ongoing research project. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having us both on. I think the top lines are threefold. I think the first one is we see here how clearly algorithms affect the content that people see and how they engage on platforms. And I think we already knew, or we already had a sense that algorithms were important, but I think that this research shows how they are important. So what is it that algorithms are doing? I think the second thing is that there's significant ideological segregation that's taking place in people's political news exposure on Facebook. And then third and finally, I would say that we conducted three experiments these were all with consenting participants during the 2020 election. And we tweaked the algorithm in a variety of ways. And what we see from those studies is that across these three months, there actually weren't changes that we were able to detect in people's political attitudes. So I would say that those are the three top lines of the studies that we've released. So how is the methodology here different than other studies that have been done in the past? You're doing something a bit different here. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I want to also say thanks so much for having us on here today. It's a real pleasure. And, a, and we really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the research. The studies that took place here use two distinct forms of methodology, and they complement each other really nicely. One is observational studies. Now, with observational studies, we were able to see what was happening across the platform, looking across all of um, adult 
users, US users of Facebook or Instagram. Now, for privacy reasons, we didn't have access to individual level data about them, the way Talia was talking about when we had consented users for the other studies. But we were able to look at this in aggregated format and get a picture of what's happening across the platform. And that allows us to answer a variety of different questions. The second type of study, though, that we were using here were experimental studies. And the experimental studies again, with consenting participants who agreed to join these, join these studies, who were told that aspects of their Facebook or Instagram experience might change. What that allowed us to do was try to look at causal relationships in the sense of we were trying to get at how do particular aspects of the platform experience, all of which were sort of theoretically motivated questions where the the, the scientific research community had questions about the impacts of different aspects of the platform. And what was unique about this study is because it was a collaborative study with researchers at Meta, we were actually able to implement experimental designs that allowed us to change aspects of people's platform experience. So we did this in kind of three ways. One was to get at the sort of what's the impact of the algorithm writ large. For one study, we put people who were in the control group into having the normal Facebook experience, but people in the treatment group got a reverse chronological feed, which is what there used to be on these platforms, right? Where they just, you just see the most recent content from your, whoever you've chosen to be friends with, whatever groups, pages you're following. So that's an, that was trying to get at the engagement driven algorithm that platforms use now. What's the impact of that? And of course, we needed to be able to work with the platform to put people back into this reverse chronological feed. The second thing we did to try to get at the question of virality was to have an experimental treatment where the people who were in the treatment were not exposed to reshared content. So they would only see posts that were original posts by people. And the third treatment that we did was to try to decrease the amount of content that people saw from politically like-minded sources. So I note that when you're describing the experiments that you're running, you're putting a lot of emphasis on the word consent, uh, that people were aware that you were doing this, uh, that they agreed to take part in these experiments on an ongoing basis. Can you explain to our listeners why that's so important, both in terms of just academic research on social media platforms and how this kind of fits into the bigger story of, of questions about the ethics of social media research? Absolutely. I mean, I think that informed consent has become, it is the standard now for academic research with human participants, where you're collecting this sort of individual data from them, is that before you do anything, you're letting them know what they're getting into and give them an idea of what this is going to involve so that they are going into this study fully equipped with the knowledge of what's going to happen in it. And for this sort of research, it's important, I think, because the participants should have some idea of what's happening on the platform, especially since we're changing what they're seeing and what they might be going to the platform, the intention that they have for going to the platform in the first place. So making sure that people are aware that parts of their experience may be changing, I think is critical. This is also part of the institutional review board process that academics at any institution uh, in the United States have to go through as a requirement for doing human, it's called human subjects research. So making sure that the participants are informed prior to participating is it's a requirement um, in addition to being an ethical standard, I think. So let's now sort of get into some of the kind of specific findings. And one of your, your findings, and I think this is probably the one that has gotten the most attention, I'll just sort of read it, is reducing the prevalence of politically like-minded content in participants' feeds during the 2020 U.S. presidential election had no measurable effects 
on attitudinal measures such as effective polarization, ideological extremity, candidate evaluations, and belief in false claims. So I'd love for you to elaborate on that finding and also just to discuss sort of what you think the the limits of of this conclusion is, right? Uh, or to put it another way, you know, under what circumstances do you think that social media could increase polarization? Uh, thanks. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, uh, and it is, you know, this particular study was designed to get at this question of echo chambers or filter bubbles, right? Like this is, they all had sort of big theoretical motivations behind it. So this one was this idea that social media is, has all these downstream effects because people go online and they're surrounded by politically like-minded people. What was interesting, just to put a little context on it, what was interesting about this study is it actually combined, this paper combines observation, an observational study with an experimental study. And so, as you said, the results of the experimental study was that reducing this exposure to like-minded, to content from like-minded sources, ended up having no effect on these things that we care about on the downstream level. But we also were able to do some descriptive work in this. And what was interesting about this is that we learned, looking across the entire platform, just how much content people are getting from politically like-minded sources. And two things kind of stuck out from that that I found particularly interesting. One is that the average Facebook user is getting a majority of the content, but just slightly more than 50% of their content from politically like-minded sources, whether that's groups, pages, or uh, individuals they've chosen to follow. They're only getting about a sixth of their content, so around under 15% of their content, the average user, from cross-cutting ideological sources. And then the rest comes from sort of moderate ideological sources. So what we learn is twofold, right? One, most people are in this situation where a lot of their content is coming from people who are politically similar to them, that they're being exposed to on the platform. But yet, when we reduced that content, it didn't seem to have any effect on these things that these echo chambers are being posited to to impact. Now, your question about, so what can we conclude from this? What we want to do is be really careful about contextualizing our results. So this experiment was run for three months during an election campaign in the United States. Now, for social science research, three months, a long time period, right? Like a lot of what we know is based on putting people, you know, undergraduates in labs for 15 minutes. So this was, we thought this was a pretty strong treatment. But of course, that's what we can conclude from this study. Three months in the United States during an election campaign it did not, changing the nature of these echo chambers did not actually have an impact on these things that we thought it would have an impact on. What we can't conclude is what that might have meant if we did this for a longer period of time. But we don't know what would have happened if we did it for two years, right? We also don't know what would have happened if we did it at another period of time. Like election elections, we were complete, really interested in this period of elections. But it might be that these, have an, that these kinds of things would have a bigger impact at a time when people aren't getting saturated all the time by uh, tons of information from lots of other sources. This is the time of year where people are talking about politics the most, right? And they're getting lots of other information. Might be it would be different if we did it in another country. So, you know, so I think we want to be we want to be clear about the finding. The finding was counter to what we think the received wisdom was and what we expected to see when we went into this study. But it's it's you know, it's limited to a strong treatment, but there are lots of other treatments that we were not able to examine in this case. So just to follow up quickly on on that, you know, if if I'm sort of a skeptic of the the platforms, right? Presumably I could say something like, well, actually what you found is not that surprising because really 
in the height of a presidential election, people's views are kind of baked in. That's when their latent preferences and you know, ideological biases are most triggered. And actually, if you had run this you know, in the middle of, a, of an electoral cycle, you know, when, when there's not something going on, that's when you would have really seen the effect. I, I'm not myself saying that. I have no reason to think that that's true or false. Um, but it, you know, is this the sort of pushback you could imagine getting um, from people who want to sort of cabin your, your results? Yeah, I mean, so I, I sometimes as a scientist, I think the highest compliment you can be paid is afterwards when people are like, oh, yeah, that's totally obvious. Well, you're like, well, it wasn't obvious. That's why we ran the study, right? Like it had never been done before. Um, and that that does happen. But, you know, it's it's definitely in the list of caveats, right? Like we don't know what would have happened. And that's why we need more research, right? We need these things to happen again. Like I think that's the we now have more information than we've ever had before about the impact of, of these platforms. And there, look, the whole project was motivated by the fact that in 2016 we were so overwhelmed by what we thought the impact of social media could have been on that election, and we're never going to know the answer to those questions. Some things have trickled out. We have observational data from 2016, but the idea was, could we go into two, 2020? and be able to answer questions that were left unanswered from 2016. So we started with during the election campaign. And I think from a, you know, from a policy perspective, had we found effects during this, that it would have been something very powerful because we could have said, hey, if you want to tamper down affective polarization in the context of elections, you could try this tweak to platforms right in those periods of time. We unfortunately didn't find that to be the result. I think there's a larger question here, which I think is, is very important to speak to in terms of the caveats. There is a question that the simple basis, basic question that people want an answer to is, would we have as much polarization in the country today if there was no social media, right? And there is no study that we can run to get the answer to that question. And I think people wanted our study to be able to answer that question. But the reality is we ran what we felt was a very strong treatment. Three months, we actually changed it, right? We knew that it was changed because we were, you know, we, we had the collaboration of people at the platform in doing this and we found no effects. Does that mean that we can tell you what the world would have been like if for the last 20 years, social, you know, computing process, processing power was never advanced to the level it was and social media platforms didn't become popular? No, there's no way to run that study and we won't be able to answer that question. Our treatment took place in the context of people who had been on Facebook for many, many years and also in the context of a world where Facebook and Twitter and TikTok had existed for, you know, well, not maybe not TikTok, but the rest of them had existed for many, many years. So, and that's, I think, sometimes the tension between scientific research, which is designed to inform the public and the public, which has bigger questions than the scientific research can answer. And so that's why, in part, why we appreciate the opportunity to come on a podcast like this to talk about what we can and cannot conclude from these findings. Yeah, what you're saying a little bit reminds me of the old joke about the farmer who goes to a physicist for help with milk production, and the physicist comes back and says, I have a solution for a spherical cow in a vacuum. Right? Just <laughs> imagine, imagine a spherical society in a vacuum, and we can answer right, right. <laughs> these questions. In all seriousness, I mean, to, to massively oversimplify what you've just said in a way that I hope is not misrepresenting it, it seems like part of the takeaway here is, as you say, we're all desperately scarred by 2016. We're trying to figure out what happened and to what extent social media platforms were involved. You've run these really in-depth studies and found that it seems like certain aspects of platform design can change our experience of platforms, uh, but perhaps they they don't change 
how we experience politics outside those platforms. They, those aspects of design may not change our political beliefs and, and our engagement with others. Again, to massively oversimplify this very complicated discussion, is this an exoneration of the platforms? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think that in any way this is an exoneration of the platforms. Again, we were only able to study things within one electoral context uh, and for a three-month period. So there's lots of things that we aren't able to answer. But I do think that this makes an important point, which is we manipulated things about what was happening on the platforms. And the results of those didn't show massive shifts in terms of what people were thinking. And I think that was the received wisdom before this was, oh, you could just make these, you know, a couple of changes, and maybe that would have these profound effects. And so I think one of the important takeaways is that simple solutions have really complex outcomes, and the solutions probably need to be complex as well. And when we say, oh, well, we'll just burst the filter bubbles by reducing the amount of like-minded content, for example, that has all sorts of implications for what sort of content people see on their feed. And then in this study, at least, we don't find any evidence that that does have a net effect on people's political attitudes in the aftermath. So I don't think it exonerates them. And I think that it says to everyone that solutions to any ills that might be caused by the platforms or might be able to be solved by the platforms are not so simple. Right. And I mean, there's also stuff in the studies that I think is not particularly flattering to Facebook. So for example, that uh, resharing seems to elevate the amount of untrustworthy sources. Um, There's information in there that indicates that content that is flagged by Facebook fact checkers as misinformation is disproportionately consumed by users on the right-leaning end of the spectrum. So it's certainly not saying, you know, everything is is hunky-dory. I mean, I do think that it's interesting how, you know, if you read the academic literature to which your your research is contributing, I think the takeaway has been for a long time, you know, Platform design, the the uh, effect on how we engage with one another, the effect on politics, it's really hard to know. It's super confusing. We need to do more research. We just can't say. Whereas societally, if you just talk to somebody on the street or frankly listen to a congressional hearing, the attitude seems to be much more, you know, we know that this platform is harming society in this way, that there's a, a sort of seizing on particular ideas, let's say about, you know, the perniciousness of filter bubbles or something like that, which is a hypothesis that was offered, it seems to have been sort of maybe disproven. So I guess my question to you is, you know, how you think about communicating that uncertainty to the public, given that disproving a hypothesis is not as sort of splashy and sexy as saying, yes, it turns out that Facebook did ruin democracy. Podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) We're part of the solution. Um, exactly. Yeah. I mean, so so th- that's a great question. And, you know, and there are people who study this, who study the field of scientific communication. Talia and I fortunately have had, you know, have both had experience beforehand with writing papers that were of generated because of scientific research questions, but were of interest to the to the wider the wider community. And I think, you know, we tried to write the papers. You know, that was one thing about being in science, having the papers be in science and nature. These are these are these are journals that have more of a wide ranging audience than some of the, you know, academic journals in my field (laughs) anyway, in political science. But we've also tried to be as you know, as the papers have come out, we've tried to be available to talk to people about it. And and I, I said podcast jokingly, but I think I actually think these longer formats are really, really valuable. 
Um, and I have heard from people who are like, oh, I heard you on this particular podcast, right? Like that I now have a much better explanation of it from what I've done. We also tried to talk, we made ourselves available to reporters when the studies came out. And I think, you know, my experience for many years of, of writing in, in popular press is, you know, you lose control of the headline at the last minute. So, so I think some of the headlines oversimplified things, but I think a lot of the reporting by reporters was really good and got into the nuance of it and got into the complexity of it. And so, you know, we just continue to try to, you know, try to talk about it when we can in these particular, you know, in these particular fora. And I think, you know, the, the question you asked before, like, does this exonerate the platforms? I think it's easier to have a conversation. I mean, on the one hand, there's there's this real tension because there is a desire for, as I said, the real question everybody really wants to know is like, did social media make the world more polarized, right? Like, and we can't answer that question, right? And so when we say, look, our research obviously can't answer this huge question, but let me tell you what it can answer, what we have, you know, what we have learned here. Hopefully that tones it down a little bit because it's like, oh, this isn't, are we exonerating the platforms or are we not exonerating the platforms? This is adding to the knowledge that's in the public domain. And I, in th- the point that I try to repeatedly make that both of us try to repeatedly make is that like, we hope that, we hope that there are two contributions from this project. One contribution is everything we're talking about now. We now have knowledge we didn't have. We are going to, going forward, know much more about social media and the 20, or Facebook and Instagram anyway, and the 2020 election than we'll ever know about what happened in 2016. And that's a net positive for society. It's a net positive for journalists. It's a net positive for policymakers. It's a net positive for the mass public. But we have also shown here that it is possible to do this kind of study and to do it in a way with consented participants and to do it in a way that is respected and, 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 and is peer reviewed in top, you know, in scientific journals, gets the stamp of approval from peer review. And that is being, you know, accepted as this is, this is rigorous scientific research that was done. And we can talk about all the things we did to ensure that. And that was like a big part of designing this project, but we've shown this is possible, right? This particular study happened probably because Mark Zuckerberg thought it was a good idea, right? The question is, as a society, now that we know this is possible, are we going to be satisfied with only getting this kind of information when the CEOs, you know, billionaires decide they'd like to, you know, support for whatever reason that they'd like to support this kind of research? Or as a society, are we going to say, hey, you know, we tell banks they have to be stress tested, right? We tell auto companies they have to report emission standards. We regulate drug markets to a humongous degree before people are allowed to bring drugs to market, right? Are we now going to say like, look, this is our real hope is that like we've shown there's a way to actually learn this kind of information. And for all the questions people still have to us that are unanswered, the way we're going to be able to answer those is if we can, if this kind of research becomes more par for the course going forward, when we think about this massive question about how are these huge platforms impacting society? So we're going to get into sort of all of those questions because I think they're really interesting. But before we move to that, I, I want to ask one more question about one of the sort of uh, other substantive findings of your study, which I thought was was super interesting. And that was this, what you call an asymmetry between conservatives and liberals when it comes to uh, political news. So you write, there was an asymmetry between these two groups where there were far more political news URLs almost exclusively seen by conservatives than political news URLs exclusively seen by liberals. So I'd love you to unpack that and sort of give your interpretation of what, what sort of that might mean. Because, you know, it occurred to me as I was reading that, that maybe that just means that, you know, right-wing political news is sort of particularly kooky. That's like one possibility. 
it might mean alternatively that, you know, mainstream media, which sort of has general penetration, is much more left-wing. So there's a lot of ways of, of cutting that. And I'm really curious sort of what you think that is, because, you know, from a kind of public epistemology perspective, this asymmetry is, seems really important and not that great. Yeah, it's a great question. So what we did was we looked at political news URLs that were posted at least 100 times on Facebook. So that's the, the essential data set that we're examining in that paper. And you're right, when we look at that, and when we look at the audiences for those political URLs, more of those URLs are circulating in conservative-leaning spaces than those URLs are circulating in left-leaning spaces. And I don't think we can say for sure what is it about those URLs or those pages that are really different in some way or another, because we didn't look at the content of those pages. So we're literally just looking at how often those URLs are circulating. But I think that it does raise some questions about how do these ecosystems of the political left and the political right differ across each other. And it suggests that there is something different about the behavior on the political right. And I say suggest because I want to remind you again that we're just looking at the URL. So we're at, we actually don't have data on individuals where we're examining where they went and where they didn't go. We're just looking at what is the audience for the URLs. And so I think that this does suggest that there's something about the information ecosystem that's that's different by ideology, uh, which is not this isn't the first time that that sort of a, a finding has been unveiled. So if you think about work that's been done looking at who tunes into Fox News, for example, there is a similar sort of a sort of a finding there. But I think it's it's worth thinking about that these findings, especially in this paper, are not consistent across the political left and right. So we've talked a lot about the substantive research findings. I'd love now to turn to sort of how the study was conducted, and in particular to zoom in onto the fact that it was done in, in close partnership with Meta, because I think that raises a lot of really interesting questions and things to discuss. And I also think by way of disclosure for Lawfare's audience, I think it's important to note that Meta also contributes to some of Lawfare's work, uh, though not this podcast. So I think it's important sort of to, for everyone to be transparent here. What I'd like to start with is just by asking you to say what you think is the most important facts to get out into the public about your relationship with, with Meta, right? You have this wonderful, very long, very informative FAQ um, that we will link to. It's a very long document. Like pluck out what you think are just the things you really want people to understand uh, from that document. At the highest level, what we want people to understand is that we thought very consciously about this from day one of the beginning of this project, right? How do you do a study where in order to do the study, you have to collaborate with the object of the study, right? And so that's actually a really tricky problem. And actually, I think, you know, we hope that one of the legacies of this project will be the sort of set of what we call guardrails that we came up with to ensure the integrity of the project. Uh, and to ensure the research integrity. But the, the biggest thing that I want people to, be able to take away is like we were consciously thinking about this from the beginning. And we came up with a lot of different things. I'm going to highlight what I think are the most important ones of these. As you said, you can go to the FAQ and see all of them. But here's the, here's the key things. The first one was, is that we had in this case assured that there would be no right of pre-publication approval by Meta. That was the first thing that was the red line to the academics, right? If you work at a platform and you do research, like your employer gets to decide what you do with that research. So we were never going to operate under that, under that conception. 
So that was the first thing we established. The second thing we did is that all of the studies from this project are pre-registered. So you guys said you, you like to nerd out on these podcasts, right? Like this is a big, big movement in the open, in open science, especially for uh, experimental studies, but we did it for observational studies too. So before, for the experimental studies, before we collected the data, for the observational studies, before we had access to the data, before we did any of the analyses, we agreed on what was going to be, what we were going to report out from these studies. So we have these documents, they get uploaded to something called the Open Science Foundation, and they get time date stamped. So you can see from a third party certification that we said before we did this, this is what we were going to report. So what that does is that prevents the ability to say like, oh, you collected all this data and you chose to do these three studies because they, you know, they had particularly good answers or anything for that. It's really good for science for, a, for getting rid of this file drawer problem where we don't report null findings. But it's also really great in this particular case because it committed everybody ahead of time to what we were going to report. And that was incredibly powerful in conjunction with the third super important guardrail, which is that we came up with what we called the lead author model. So as you guys have noticed, there are a lot of people on this project. Talia and I co-led a team of an amazing team of 17 academics who worked on this. But then there was a team of, of meta researchers. And then we brought on additional academics on a paper by paper basis who weren't involved with planning the whole overall project, but to work on particular papers. So these are tons of people. But for every paper, and this was specified in the PAP, there was a group of academics from that core 17-person team who were identified as what we called the lead authors with control rights. And that meant that final decisions as to what would be in both those pre-analysis plans and what would be written in the papers at the end of the day would lie with the academic team. Now, when we were preparing the pre-analysis plans, we got feedback from our collaborators at Meta. And the constraints here were that what we were doing had to not violate any of their legal obligations. And those were primarily legal obligations around the privacy of users. And there were questions of feasibility, right? As you now know from, this, from, the, from the rapporteur's report, right? There was over $20 million that was spent on study on these studies. If we had come in and said, we want to spend a billion dollars on the study, they could have said, that's not feasible. Or if we had said, we want to make this manipulation to check this experiment, and they're like, you can't actually do that with the way that we have the setup. That was the kind of feedback we would get. But within those constraints, the academics had the right of this control rights on what was going to go in these things. Now, the meta authors had the right to take their names off the paper, as does any of the academics. So that's what they could do. If they didn't agree with it, they could take their names off the paper, but they couldn't say we had to change this. So this combination of factors that there was no pre-publication approval, other than looking at the legal and privacy concerns, that we pre-registered everything, and that we had academics on each paper who were the lead authors with control rights on this, I think that is what has led. Oh, and then we also had this independent rapporteur who was a person who was neither on the academic team nor on the meta team, but had access to all of our meetings, conducted interviews with tons of people in the special issue of science where the first three publications that were in science were published. There was also a report from the rapporteur. He concluded that the research was of the highest rigorous scientific quality. And I think that that's, you know, I think that's a, that's a credit to this, you know, that's because of this system that we've set up here in this regard. And again, we hope this can be a model for how to do, industry academic research in a transparent manner uh, that will generate rigorous scientific research that people will find trustworthy in the future.
So Jeff Horwitz at the Wall Street Journal, who reports on Meta, um, has done some reporting about disagreements between you and the company about how to present the findings, specifically that Nick Clegg at Meta sort of came out of the gate arguing that your findings showed, and I'll quote from his post, there is little evidence that key features of Meta's platforms alone cause harmful affective polarization or have meaningful effects on those outcomes. Um, I'll note that the word, the use of the word alone in that sentence, which I think is key. I have a feeling you probably wouldn't agree with that characterization. Um, I'm curious for your thoughts on uh, your relationship with Meta in terms of the rollout. Yeah. So, you know, that's a, a statement produced by Meta. That's not one that we produced in any way. And, you know, that should be attributed to Nick Clegg and what he's thinking about, about the world and the state of affairs. On our end, what we really tried to do was present the research in publications and then in interviews afterward as documenting that there are some aspects of the Facebook and Instagram experience that are really worth some some thought as to whether they have as to whether they have consequences for society or not. And by presenting this as a complicated picture, I mean, this, these results weren't one-sided in any way. They showed some things that I think the platform probably would be thrilled to see, some things that the platform would probably not be thrilled to see. But this wasn't a coordinated communication effort where we all sat together and decided how we were going to present the results. The academics really went through with sharing the, the findings that they had. And then Nick Clegg had a blog post that indicated uh, his read of of the research evidence, including what we did here and the research evidence writ large. You mentioned the role of the the rapporteur, uh, Michael Wagner, who is the, sort of the external observer here, and and you're absolutely right that he sort of validated that this research was done at a very high level. Um, but he also did have some skepticism about this research being used as a model for future kinds of research. And and so in, in the uh, in the science piece that, that you mentioned, he had the following to say, though the work is trustworthy, I argue that the project is not a model for future industry academy collaborations. The collaboration resulted in independent research, but it was independence by permission from Meta. And I'm just curious what you think about that. Yeah, I, I mean, that's exactly what I was talking about before in our earlier on in the conversation. I'm actually quite in agreement with that statement, right? It, this was great. We got independent research out of it, but I don't think this is the ideal model for how these projects should come about. But when we say it's a model for how to do the research, we mean how to do the research. All these things we've talked about with the guardrails and the and putting in the studies and pre-registration. And these are ways that, you know, because I think one of the key things to understand here is these studies, these particular studies could not have been done without the collaboration of the platform. we If we had said, we're gonna to stick to this, we are independent researchers, we do research without working with the platforms, we wouldn't have answers to these questions. And maybe the platforms would have done the research on their own, and then there would have been all sorts of questions about whether to trust the results of, those, of that research. We think this is a huge step forward from a model where the platforms do all of this research, and we maybe find out about it because something is leaked and we're parsing a, a PowerPoint slide right, to see what, what, what was being learned, as opposed to this kind of a setup with pre-registration, with academics with control rights, with academics coming up for designs for the studies, and being able to work with the platforms to implement them. But Mike's point there about like that it was done because Facebook decided it could be done, that's right. And this is my challenge to the public and to policymakers. This is our challenge to the public, to policymakers, is do we want to live in the world where these kinds of studies get done because the platforms decide they get to get done, right? The banks don't decide if they want to do stress tests or not, right? They have to do them. 
It's a condition of doing business. And there are very interesting develops going, developments going on in this in, right now in Europe in the DSA around, and now I'm getting into your guys in lawfare. So I, you know, I'm getting into your angle and you know much more about this than we do, but like this idea of, I find this very exciting, this idea of designating these very large platforms or VLOPs as they call it in the DSA, right. And saying, if you're going to be this big and potentially have this big of an impact on society, there are obligations for research to be done to understand so society can understand what the impact of that platform is on society. And in that sense, I feel like what we did can be a very good model for how some of that research can take place. And we've actually had conversations with people in Europe who have been saying, you know, hey, we're now realizing that the way the DSA is set up, it's going to be great for get or potentially great for getting observational data, but it's not even set up yet to be able to do what you guys did. So Mike, I think, is right in that regard. It's not ideal that it only happened because the platforms because a platform decided it's great that it happened and it's great that this platform decided it would happen but yeah as a citizen that's not the world i want to live in i don't want it to be only up to mark zuckerberg whether this type of research takes place so you've preempted my next question which was exactly about uh, the provisions in the dsa for for researcher access no not at all i mean i, I think it, it shows like this actually does say interesting things about whether or not we should have requirements in the united states for example um for this kind of access and that turns us to you know the policy implications of your research so obviously there is this question about you know what this says in terms of setting policy for how research on platforms is conducted. And I'd certainly be curious if either of you have any additional thoughts about that. There's also the question of, you know, substantive policy implications, um, if anything flows out of your findings. Yeah, I mean, just as a starting point, I think it's absolutely the case that this research was done by the will of the platform and credit to Meta for doing it. But the data access is so poor. And if we look back even five years, our data access has become worse. Social media platforms are shutting down their APIs. They're making it more difficult for academics to do this sort of work, which I think is really worrisome. I really hope that there's some action in terms of thinking through if we want to have these data, if we want to understand what's happening on these platforms, we have to have some mechanism that propels the platforms to do it because relying on their goodwill every once in a while uh, probably isn't a sufficient strategy in order to get data access. So I think that's a really critical part of this research is demonstrating the sort of things that we can learn from the platforms, in this case, in partnership with them. But this is just one case on one social media platform. And so I think the opportunity to really dive into what sort of observational data do we want to know? Do we want to know how many instances of information from untrustworthy sources people are seeing on platforms? It seems like that sort of even descriptive data would be so useful for academics, for policymakers, for the public. And then I think in terms of coming out of the research that we did and thinking about the policy implications for social media in particular, uh, one of the studies that we did that uh, actually was being debated in terms of maybe this is a policy solution is requiring the switch from the typical news feed to a chronological news feed where instead of a ranking al algorithm showing you what they think is your most preferred content first, you would just see the most recent post by others in your feed. And I think that the results of that study show that that change does a lot to affect what people see in their feed. And some of it we probably would say, oh, yeah, that's, that's a great thing. 
switching to chronological feed, reduced exposure to, uh, uh, to uncivil content on Facebook. Maybe we'd say that's a good thing. Maybe not. It's worth debating. But there are other parts of this that we might say, oh, maybe that's not so good because the switch to chronological feed that uh, had some effects that maybe we wouldn't think are so good. So I think that it exposes the complexity of policy solutions that dictate how algorithms have to operate. It's just not so simple in terms of one switch to to an algorithm has all these changes in terms of what content is surfaced and what people see on the platforms. So I, I hope that the implication of this is A, data access, and B, that some of these simple solutions have lots of complexities to them and this is the sort of research that can reveal those complexities. So increasing the opportunities to do this work, to inform policy, I think is really key. Yeah, I'll just reiterate. I mean, I think that, you know, I agree with everything that Taya said. When Taya said at the beginning that data access was poor, I just want to clarify that didn't mean data access was poor in the context of this study. Our data oh, yeah, access in the yeah. context of this study was incredibly rich. But without this kind of collaboration, the reason we needed this kind of a study is because there's so many things that as researchers when we that we don't have access to that people inside the platforms do. So I, you know, I wish and I, you know, and we've been asked this question a lot about the policy implications. It would have been great if we came back with positive findings on one of these studies, because then we would have had a policy prescription where we could have said, hey, if you do X in the months before the elections, you know, in 2020, at least it tamped down these things that we think are concerning. We just didn't find that. And instead, what we found is what Talia was highlighting here, which was that when you do these changes, there are all these different things that happen. And I think digging into the papers, you find these really interesting kind of trade-offs, some of which are counterintuitive versus not. So like the, on the reshares one, where we, which was designed to limit access to virality, and, and one of you led with this very early on in our discussion here, right? We found that actually by shutting down research, people were exposed to fewer posts from these untrustworthy sources. But we also found that the amount of posts that people saw from untrustworthy sources was pretty small to start with. And people were also exposed to fewer actual political news headlines, right? And so it turns out that what's probably happening is that a lot of reshares is sharing New York Times articles, right? So when you do this thing, we think, okay, virality, bad. Here's a way to shut down virality. And yes, we did find it probably did shut down a little bit of people's access to low quality information, but it also reduced their access to high quality information, right? And so you need the research, you know, so un unfortunately, I wish I had this kind of, we wish we had this silver bullet we could point to right now and say, do this and things will be better. And I realize it sounds pretty self-serving as researchers to say, do more research. But like the policy implication of this is that like these are complex systems that are, you know, about that, that the received wisdom can be wrong about and policy changes, right, have all sorts of implications. And we need more continuing research like this to be able to understand this. And to stress the last thing Talia said, right, this is one, it was two platforms, Facebook and Instagram. Right. But we know that TikTok is huge right now. Right. Like there's a lot of discussion about what's happening on the platform formerly known as Twitter. Right. Like and YouTube remains enormously popular. So there are lots and lots of places where this this kind of research should be taking place so that the public policymakers, journalists, podcasters <laughs> can all be better informed when we're having discussions about the relationship between social media and in this case, we were just doing kind of social media and politics for the most part, but we all know that social media affects all sorts of other aspects of people's lives. And so that, that to me is the big policy takeaway. I'm sure this is not the end of 
both of your thinking on this subject. And so to close out, I, I'd love to sort of get a sense from you about what you think the future of this research project is. And, you know, to the extent you want to give us a tease, a preview of, of the next <laughs> papers, um, just love, love to sort of get a sense of where you're going next with this. Yeah, so these were the first four of uh, over a dozen different studies that we've pre-registered. So we have others that will be coming out and they do all sorts of different things. Uh, quick teaser would be we have one where participants were deactivated on Facebook and Instagram. So we actually, uh, again, with their consent, of course, we paid them to be off of the platform throughout the election period. Can I can I just say, how do I get someone to pay me to not be on social media? <laughs> That one was actually a funny one because we did see some people on Instagram uh, saying, guess what? I just got offered some money to not be on the platform, which is uh, funny for us to see to see that in the real world. But uh, yeah, so that's one study that's coming out. We have others looking at more types of content on the platform. Uh, so stay tuned. There's a lot more to share. All right. We're going to end it there. Talia, Josh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. And thanks for being so informed about the studies as part of this discussion. It's, re it's really been a pleasure to get to talk in, in detail about a lot of this stuff. So thank you so much. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, a Lawfare podcast series in the information ecosystem. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>